0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 19. In the last episode, I covered Hefer, Tanuk, Goyam, and Terzah, all places mentioned in Joshua 12, as having been defeated by the Israelites when they were led by Joshua. This week, I'm continuing to push through the list of places found at the end of that chapter. And with that, let's get started. Joshua 12 verse20 mentions a place called Shimron Moron, along with its king. Other than these two things, not much is known about the city. There are several people, and places, listed in the Old Testament that are named Shimron, including a descendant of Issachar, which may be the person the city was named after, at least after the Israelites conquered it, so renamed after. But in all of these cases, the suffix muron is never mentioned. In fact, this is the only place in the entirety of the Bible that the place Shimron-Muron is found. There are two people, Judea and Jadin, listed as Moronothites, but it's unclear if these men are from Shimron-Muron or another place with a similar name. There is a bit of a clue in the text. And that's that the name is followed by Akeship. The first verse in chapter 11 reads When King Jobin of Hazer heard of this, he sent King Jobab of Madden to the king of Shimron to the king of Akeship. So, in this case, the Moron is not found, but Shimron is followed by Akeship. Add to this, we know that a king of Shimron was defeated in chapter 11. And this is the only king of Shimron found in 12. So the safe conclusion is that the place and king listed in 12 is the same as the one found in 11, and that it was called something different at that time, with this name being assigned after it was conquered but before Joshua was recorded. That's a lot of assumptions and conclusions, but when you have little to go on, that's about as good as it gets. In the outside record there are a few names which I'll spare you but they are roughly similar but still nothing conclusive and that's it for Shimron Moron. moving along next up is Hormah listed in Joshua 12 verse 14 along with its king as having been defeated by Joshua the word Hormah in ancient Hebrew translates to three curious phrases broken rock band and devoted to destruction, perhaps giving some insight into the place bearing the name. To the Canaanites, it was known as Zephith, a name found twice in the Old Testament, once in Judges, which tells us how the place got the Hebrew name. There it reads, The descendants of Hobab the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah which lies in the Negev, near Arad. Then they went and settled with the Amalekites. Judah, meaning the tribe, went with his brother, Simeon, also meaning the tribe. They defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephthah and devoted it to destruction. So, the city was called Horma. That's clear enough. And judges were told, Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and three hundred chariots, and came as far as Merishah. Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zapatha at Merishah. Asa cried out to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is no difference for you between helping the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come out against this multitude. O Lord, you are God, but let no mortal prevail against you. So, the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa, and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. This is yet another part of the Old Testament we are rarely told about. And the footnote of the New Revised Standard Version relays that the Ethiopians could also have been translated as Nubians. In ancient Hebrew, they were called Cushites. The King James renders them as Ethiopians, while the NIV uses Cushite. I'll have more on all of that in a much later episode. For now, though, I need to back up. In this case, to Numbers 14. It was in this chapter that, just after the spies returned from Canaan, and the people refused to go in, instead cowering in fear, And God, through Moses, told them they would wander for 40 years, until after most of the current generation died off. After they were told this, many of the Israelites rebelled, attempting to enter into Canaan. The text tells us that these people presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, even though the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and Moses had not left the camp. Then, the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them, pursuing them as far as Hormah. Seven chapters later, and still in Numbers, it was mentioned again. Here it reads, When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negeb, heard that Israel was coming by way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. Then Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into our hands, then we will utterly destroy their towns. The Lord listened to the voice of Israel and handed over the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their towns. So the place was called Hormah. And in this case, in the footnote of the New Revised Standard, the translation of Hormah to destruction is mentioned. The footnote of the NIV tells us the same. What's more interesting in the NIV is the footer about the destruction, seemingly in an attempt to explain why the Israelites went on to destroy many people in Canaan. That footnote reads, the Hebrew term, and in this case, the word is destroy or destruction. This word refers to the irrevocable giving over of things or persons to the Lord often by totally destroying them. In my mind, what's between the lines is that the fate of the Israelites' enemies was left up to God, but that's bordering on theology, and I don't do that. As for other mentions in the text, there are a few, but mostly as a geographic location, and that's the biblical history. The outside record is lacking, with the location currently unknown, but thought to be between Beersheba and Gaza. Though the text may place it closer to Arad, it may have been east of the dry Arabah Valley. Within this area, several places have been suggested, but there's nothing conclusive, and that's it. Since it may have been close to Arad, and the two are mentioned together in Numbers 21, I'll cover that place next. Fortunately, we know a little more about this city. Numbers 21, and again in Numbers 33, we're told that the city was Canaanite and had an unnamed king. Those two things are not surprising. We're also told it's in the Negev, the desert in what's today southern Israel. The city was mentioned again in Judges 1, in the passage I paraphrased earlier when covering Hormah. It merited another mention in First Chronicles, but merely as a landmark. Then something that may or may not be a reference to the place. And that's it in the text. In the outside record, what are believed to be the remains of the city are on a tell, aptly named Tell Arad. For clarity, it's not located at the modern Israeli town of Arad, but is instead about 6 miles, 10 kilometers west, and also southwest of the Dead Sea. Because it will come up later, it's about 18 miles, nearly 30 kilometers east of Beersheba. It's in a plain with which it shares a name, in this case, the Arad Plain, and is surrounded by mountains. The site was first settled around 4000 BC, which would place it in the relatively short Copper Age, Apparently copper, or at least the ore, was available in the area as during this time and even in the subsequent Bronze Age. Artifacts seem to indicate it was involved in the copper trade with the nearby larger city of Beersheba. But apparently, the copper available wasn't terribly plentiful, as not much later, and still in the early Bronze Age, the city was abandoned. This was about the same time that other nearby places in the Negev highlands were on the rise, and more specifically, the trading area and copper industry in the Arabuk traded with the Egyptian Old Kingdom. The thinking is that the city was largely unoccupied until after the Israelites showed up, probably sometime in the 11th century BC. At this point, or at least near this point, It was an unwalled city thought to be only on the upper tell. Only later was a wall and a fort built, with the construction believed to have occurred during the reigns of King David and his son, King Solomon. Which gets me to the outside record. As for the archaeological site, it consists of an upper and lower city. This place was first identified in the mid-19th century by Edward Robinson, though he relied on the place name found in the text of Joshua and what the locals were calling it at the time he arrived. In the next 180 years after his identification, numerous excavations were conducted, yielding the usual results. Uncovered artifacts within a sanctuary of the citadel mostly show offerings of oil, wine, wheat, and the like, probably brought there by nearby residents. Overall, it appears that this fort and sanctuary was functioning throughout the reign of the kings of Judah, up until the kingdom's fall to the Babylonians in 605 BC and at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Under the Judean kings, the fortification was periodically rebuilt and less frequently remodeled, at least until the Babylonians arrived. As part of their conquest, they destroyed the fortification. Though, even after this, the sanctuary part of the fort may have still served the same religious purpose for even longer, through the occupation of the Persians, Maccabeans, Romans, and even the early Muslim period, meaning nearly 2,000 years. Throughout this time, the locals would continue to bring their offerings to the sacred precinct of the upper hill, which gets me to one of the more unusual, but usual finds. And by usual, I mean mostly pottery fragments. In this case, over 100 pieces that were inscribed in ancient Hebrew and dated to about 600 BC. This was, of course, 600 or so years after the events of Joshua. These fragments were found in what was assumed to be the Old Fort. The assumptions of it being a military compound was based on what was inscribed on the pottery. Letters between the military commanders of the fort and the supply lines, people we refer to as quartermasters. One of these was addressed to someone named Eliashib. Another reference is the house of Yahweh, thought to be the Jerusalem temple. And if this is true, this is the only reference to the Jerusalem temple in the outside record. Let me rephrase. The facts about the pottery fragment are true. If the assumption that it is a mention of the Jerusalem temple, then that's the only record of it outside of the biblical text. There is an alternate theory, and that's that the site itself was the sanctuary referred to on the pottery. As for this, and like I alluded to earlier, there was a worship site at the fort, if it had a sanctuary, then within what would have been the Holy of Holies of this temple, two incense altars and a standing stone were found. The stone may have been the altar dedicated to Yahweh. Dark material preserved on their upper surfaces was used for organic residue analysis. On these were found traces of cambinoids, boswellic acid, and norocytriene. As for this last ingredient, it may have been from frankincense. Some go further to suggest that in this case, the frankincense may have been used as an hallucinogen. If this is true, then the find would be the first uncovered evidence of an hallucinogenic substance found in the kingdom of Judah. But that's a big if. Back in the history of the town, either during the Greek or Roman periods, The fort was rebuilt. And there's more. The outside record shows that Herod, and in this case, it was the version of Herod that thought of himself as being great. Some believed he ordered the rebuilding of the lower city, including a relatively large bakery. Overall, the city would remain occupied until about 135 AD, when, during the Second Jewish-Roman War, The Romans sacked Jerusalem and completely expelled the remaining Jews, including those in Arad. The city was again abandoned, this time for about 500 years until the early Islamic period, when what was last the Roman fort was rebuilt by what's thought to have been a local wealthy family. It would be occupied until 861 AD, when a wide-scale rebellion swept the region. As part of this unrest, the citadel was destroyed, again, and that was it, until the 1800s archaeological expeditions. Today, the site is part of the Tel Arad National Park, with ongoing work to restore the walls of both the upper and lower sites. And that's it for Arad. All of this gets me to Megiddo. As for the place's name in ancient Hebrew, it translates to governor as in the person governing the region. Of all the places I've recently covered, we know perhaps the most about this one. Like nearly all of these cities listed at the end of Joshua 12, it's on a hill, a tell. In its case, located in what is today Israel, about 19 miles, 30 kilometers southeast of Haifa, which places it southwest of the Sea of Galilee and towards the coast. And, to cut to the chase, this place is perhaps best known for its Greek name, Armageddon, as in the place in Revelation 16, where a final battle will take place. More on that in a few minutes. In the biblical text, the mention in Joshua was the first, with the remainder mostly of a geographic landmark sort, including several relating to a battle fought in the plain near the city. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before the Israelites arrived, after their 400-ish year Egyptian absence, and during the Bronze Age, Megiddo was a significant Canaanite city, important enough, and as Joshua mentioned, that it had its own king, as did many cities in the greater region. It would remain important for nearly all of the period when it was controlled by the Israelites, and the reason for this importance was the same as we've seen enough times that it's becoming a trend, maybe a predictable trend. Trade. In its case, Megidda was located at the northern end of a gorge formed by the Wadi Ara. This river or stream, depending on your perspective and which exact portion you're referring to, formed a pass through the Carmel Ridge, and that's Carmel like Mount Carmel. But, that wasn't the only advantage the city had. It was also on a ridge that overlooked the Jezreel Valley. But, you can back up to even the Copper Age, and in this case, as early as about 4500 BC, and there's evidence it was occupied at that time, too. Probably also owing to its location. When trade finally did take off, sometime between the Copper and Bronze Ages, Megiddo was nearly perfectly positioned on the routes between the Fertile Crescent, Egypt, Anatolia, and Arabia. Location, location, location. But there's a downside to a strategic location. Everyone wants to control it. In the case of Megiddo, it's been the site of many battles throughout history, not just in Joshua or what could be to come as written in Revelation in the early Bronze Age, so when it was still controlled by the Canaanites. And in this sense, that's a very general sense. Anyway, there was a huge temple located at the site. Modern archaeologists have described the site as being one of the most significant finds in the region from the period, possibly one of the largest structures in the region at the time it was built. This building includes an immense, over 11,000 square foot, 1,000 square meters, large sanctuary. This temple is more than 10 times larger than the typical temple of that era. The first wall was constructed in the early Bronze Age. Among the ruins was enough biological matter to allow carbon-14 dating that showed construction and occupation between the 31st and 30th centuries BC. This would place it about a millennia before Abraham. It's so large and at such an early time that it may represent the first urban development in the region. As a reference, this structure was built about 5 to 600 years before the pyramids at Giza. And, in Megiddo, this wasn't a one-time event. Instead, the building continued and included another temple-type compound, built at a slightly later time, but still in the early Bronze Age. This one had several long, parallel stone walls, each of which was about 13 feet, 4 meters wide. Between the walls were narrow corridors filled 4 feet, just over a meter deep, with the remains of animal sacrifices. These walls were built below another huge temple complex. More than 80% of the animal remains were of young sheep and goats, with the balance being cattle. Also dating to the period is a solid circular stone structure that has been interpreted as an altar or high place. All of this is why archaeologists consider the city to be an important Canaanite religious center. It's also the largest early Bronze Age site in Canaan, in this case over 123 acres, 50 hectares. All of this lasted into the second millennium BC, the time of Abraham, and in what's now known as the beginning of the Middle Bronze Age. The city was certainly an urban center at this time, and likely wielded economic and military power throughout the region. Towards the end of the period, a large royal burial place was found until Megiddo, dating to about 1700 BC. This was in the era just before the Egyptians would invade and control the region, so the royals in this case were of a Canaanite origin. All of this culminated in what has become known as the Battle of Megiddo, which I touched on in Chapter 3 of the podcast. In this case, the Egyptian pharaoh Thutmose III who ruled between about 1479 and 1425 BC, defeated the local Canaanite rulers. At that point in time, and remember, this was when the Israelites were living in Egypt, but at that point, most of the region came under the control of the Egyptians. For Megiddo, what this meant was, among other things, a massive government palace was constructed. About a century later, And, as seen in the Amarna letters I've referenced numerous times, Megiddo was a vassal state. Given the prominence of the city, mentions of it can be found throughout these letters. Archaeological finds from this period include ivory sourced from a hippopotamus tooth, likely a beast that lived in the Nile. The piece shows an Egyptian stylistic influence. Also found was an ivory pen case, inscribed with the picnogram of Pharaoh Ramses III, which gets us to about 1150 BC, when the city was destroyed. This could have been the victory mentioned in Joshua. The timing certainly lends credence to that. After the destruction, it was resettled by the Israelites, though the archaeological finds also show possible Philistine residents finds from the period include a collection of jewelry pieces that were in a ceramic pottery piece. The jewelry dates to around 1100 BC and includes beads made from carnelian stone, a ring, and earrings. The collection was likely owned by a wealthy Canaanite or Israelite family. Either way, and given the contents, probably the ruling elite. At some point after this, the city was destroyed again, this time by fire. It would be rebuilt, seeming to become a vital Israelite city. No surprise there, as it was important before, during, and after they came back from Egypt. Ruins from this period include a grain pit for storing supplies, possibly in case of siege. Also found were stables, originally thought to date to the time of Solomon, but now thought to be from about 150 years later when Ahab was king. These horse stables were actually at least five separate structures built around a courtyard paved with limestone. The buildings were about 70 feet, 21 meters long, and 36 feet, 11 meters wide, each building large enough to hold about 30 horses, with the overall capacity for the complex estimated to be close to 500 horses. The stone pillars had holes bored into them, thought to be where the horses would be tied up. Mangers were placed between the buildings for feeding the horses, though there is a minority view that the buildings were not stables, but instead either storehouses, marketplaces, or barracks. Finally, there was a water system, with a square shaft about 115 feet, 35 meters deep. The bottom of which opened into a tunnel bored through rock for over 300 feet, 100 meters, to a pool of water. When Tiglath-Pileser III of Aram-Damascus invaded in the 8th century BC, he destroyed the city again, and it was rebuilt again. This time, becoming an administrative center for his occupying force. In 609 BC, Megiddo was conquered by the Egyptians again, this time led by Pharaoh Necho II, at another battle known as the Battle of Megiddo. After this defeat, the importance of the city diminished, with it finally being abandoned around 586 BC, never to be reoccupied. For archaeologists, this has been a gift from the past, as the ruins have remained in place largely undisturbed since that time. Before moving on, do note I covered two battles between the locals and the Egyptians, each known as the Battle of Megiddo. And there was another one, this time in World War I. This battle, and I touched on it a few episodes ago, was between the British and the Ottomans, and was a turning point in that theater of the war. And that's it for Megiddo, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll cover the last place in Joshua 12, at least the last one I haven't covered yet, Libna. It's also the podcast's fifth anniversary, so time for the annual update. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcasts as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening.